Welcome to another Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson. I'm Stan Guthrie, and today, John, we'll be looking at more Secrets of Book Reviewing, Episode 3. Take it away. That's right, Stan, and I'm still working on some of those marketing ideas. Uh, (laughs) It's been great to hear from people who are enjoying this series so far, and one thing I'm finding out is that we probably should have called it something else because (laughs) what some people are expecting by the title, which is perfectly reasonable, is that it's going to primarily be from the standpoint of you as a reviewer. Like what are some of the secrets Mm -hmm. that go into the craft of reviewing and so on? Given that, we should probably devote a couple of episodes to that. But really when we started off, what we were thinking of was from the standpoint of putting out a publication like Books and Culture or some other review-type publication. But now we're stuck with the title. and <laughs> you know, Names are like that, just like the name of a magazine. I mean, you think of you know Books and Culture. What does that really say? It doesn't really say very much. But after a while, the magazine's around for a few years, and it takes on an identity. And you think of The New Republic or Harper's. Christian century. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's a really good example. Yeah. So we're on episode three, and what I'm going to talk about this time is a couple of examples of something that every editor experiences, and that is an idea that doesn't work. And in this case, it connects with another interesting theme, and that is the way that at any given time, there are certain subjects certain writers, and so on, for whom you can find many, many reviewers who could take it on and want to take it on. And then on the other hand, there are other subjects and other individuals that you might get someone to write about that are much harder to find. And that part of it just has to do, of course, with specialized knowledge. If you're wanting to do a piece on, let's say, the history of jade, that's something where you have a relatively small pool of potential contributors as opposed to something on contemporary American religion, let's say, where you have an embarrassment of riches. But it's not just that. There's a lot in the world of ideas that in some ways resembles the world of fashion. Things go in and out, and you might say, well, that's really trivial. (laughs) What you're interested in, things that are not so ephemeral, Well, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, we do care about enduring issues and enduring truths and so on. But on the other hand, it's the very nature of our lives that we are caught up in this ongoing whirl. And so while fashion is often used as a kind of synonym for everything that is ephemeral, trivial, it really doesn't matter. It's just fashion. It's just a passing fashion. In another way, there's a great similarity between the world of style and clothing and then fashion in that sense, and intellectual fashion. Mm-hmm. And it's wrong to go too far to either extreme. In other words, it's wrong to then conclude, well, there was a certain period of time when if everyone had to know what was happening in France, the latest ideas being imported from France. And if you didn't know that, you weren't an intellectual. You were just out of the game. <laughs> And that's not true now. Now it's something else. And so therefore, it's all just a bunch of phonies. I have friends who are themselves intelligent people, but 
in a way, that's how they think about the world of ideas, mm. that it's all just cliques and fashion. And then on the other hand, you can go wrong by making it seem that the world of ideas and what matters and what we're talking about, these serious things, that they're somehow above all that. Right. <laughs> and that's just not true. What you have to do is sort of muddle along on a middle course and accept the fact that we're caught up in styles, in tastes, in certain ideas that become somehow in the moment. Many, many people are attracted to them and are talking about them. And all of that might seem such a high level of generality that it doesn't have much to do with the decisions you make as an editor and the difficulty or ease you have in finding a good piece. But from my standpoint, and different editors have different feelings about things like this, I don't want too heavy a proportion of pieces in any given issue of books and culture that seem to have to do with three or four subjects that everyone is writing about right now. Mm -hmm. It's not that I feel like we're above that, you know, like, oh, we would never, because that would be a very foolish position to put yourself in. We're not going to talk about anything that a lot of people are talking about. I mean, that would be suicidal, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. and also prideful. But partly just because of our nature as a publication only comes out every two months, and partly just by personal taste, I feel like on subject X, Y, and Z, a lot of our readers, if they want to read about that, they're already going to have lots of opportunities, and we don't need to add to that. On the other hand, we have an opportunity to talk about some things that maybe they're not so likely to hear. And at the same time, for instance, there was a book that this young writer I've mentioned to you a couple of times, D.L. Mayfield, reviewed for us that was called On Immunity. Well, that was a book that got reviewed everywhere. It ended up on a whole lot of best-of-the-year lists, and we reviewed that. So, in other words, we're not saying, as I said a minute ago, that we're going to deliberately disdain <laughs> everything that a lot of people are interested in. But all this leads to a couple of examples of ideas that failed. And one was a piece on Norman Mailer. There was a big biography of him that came out some months ago, and I sent that in galleys to a promising young writer. He wrestled with it, and he was doing a lot of other stuff, and it was clear that he didn't have time to really plunge into reading a whole lot of Mailer and getting up to speed on that. And so that just didn't work out. So I said, well, I'll find someone else to do. Well, here's the funny thing. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have been able to find anyone to do it, but I tried, and meanwhile, a collection of his essays came out, a selection of essays and some letters. So, you know, there was ample material for a piece. And what I found is that, not that there aren't people who are interested in him, and if we were a different kind of magazine, for instance, if we were a New York-based publication with a certain constituency and a certain pool of writers, I would have been able to find someone to write about Miller. But in our particular circles, he is currently at the point where, for a lot of people, he's old news. So I just had to say, oh, well, <laughs> or not. <laughs> and then more recently, Knopf published a collection of letters by the writer Langston Hughes, and also did a really nice job reissuing this book of poems called The Weary Blues by him. When I just had those books in galleys, I started trying to 
assign that for a piece. And you might think, well, that one would be easier than Mailer because you're talking about a black writer. Now is a time when a lot of people are interested in talking about black writers and black culture more generally. And I got some recommendations. None of them took it on. Hmm. I'm going to write about that myself. I wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> I want us to have something on Langston Hughes. You know, I'll probably do a piece for the Books and Culture website about it. Those are two examples that might seem totally random, but I give them because they're typical of what happens whenever you're doing this kind of enterprise, whether you're a large publication like the TLS that has not only an editor but a whole bunch of sub-editors that preside over different areas, like this person is in charge of classical history, and you know this person does this, and this person does that. To some extent, what shows up in your pages is a matter of design. It also partly reflects these subtle currents that we're talking about of what people are going to be responsive to and fashion. <laughs> Do you have any other words of advice for potential reviewers? Well, in this case, I'm going to turn it back to not reviewers, but people who are in some way doing something similar to what I do, whatever the forum might be. And that is that you have to have a philosophical attitude about what actually gets into your pages and what doesn't. Because a lot of ideas that for one reason or another seem perfect are not ever going to come to fruition. And it's silly to brood about that and beat yourself up about it because that's just the nature of the game. There's always the next issue, right? There's always the next issue. For some reason, no books were brought up from the mailroom yesterday. Maybe the guy from the mailroom was on vacation, and you might say, well, gee, big deal, you know, but coming back after the holiday, you know, I, I was expecting a big stack of new arrivals, so there's always another stack of new arrivals. 